Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Well, we've made it. If you're listening to this on release day... Happy Winter Solstice, the shortest, darkest day of the year, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere at least. After today, each day gets a little longer, the darkness a little shorter. The horrors of the crowds and chaos of the final weekend of holiday shopping aside, this last week saw plenty of news about things to look forward to, or not, in horror over the next year and beyond. The one I'm probably most excited about? Guillermo del Toro's cinematic take on the kids' classic Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which just set a release date of summer 2019. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone when I say Scary Stories was probably one of, if not the first, true introduction I had into the world of horror. Elvin Schwartz's classic collection of folklore-inspired tales is unsettling on its own, but looking back, I think it was the artwork by Stephen Gamble that really tipped it over the edge into terrifying territory. A couple of Christmases ago, I ordered a fresh box set of the series, hoping, possibly to my detriment, to introduce my son to the kind of closet-watching, under-the-bed-checking, sleepless nights that those tales had me endure as a kid. But when the books arrived, I was disappointed. That key, terrifying ingredient was missing. Sure, Brett Helquist, the illustrator of the updated Anniversary series, is a talented artist in his own right, but... There's simply no recapturing the eerie black inkiness of Gamel's unsettling interpretations. That said, Del Toro's involvement in this film makes me cautiously optimistic that it will be able to capture some of that visual tension. 
If his previous efforts, like Pan's Labyrinth, are any indication, I think we're in good hands. The other adaptation that caught my attention was one of a very different breed entirely. And let's just say I have very different feelings about it, too. Now, love them or hate them, if you've ever ventured down the rabbit hole that is creepypastas, you've probably heard of the Russian sleep experiment. The story of five test subjects exposed to an experimental anti-sleep drug in a Soviet science experiment. Given that it's considered one of the most widely shared creepypastas of all time, it's really no surprise that some enterprising film producers have decided to bring it to the big screen. Now, I try my best to be optimistic about this sort of thing, but when your horror movie cast includes Saturday Night Live alum and Night at the Roxbury star Chris Kattan, well, let's just say I have a healthy dose of skepticism. But I'd love to be proved wrong. In the meantime, if you're looking for something to watch or read during your time off over the holidays, you'll find no lack of that either. Tis the season for lists, after all, and lists and lists. Whether it's a look back at the best horror movies, books, and games of 2018, or an eye to the future frights that await in the new year, there's a list for that. One of the most interesting I've read so far is a look at 2018's offering of horror films by Film School Rejects. What's intriguing about this list for me is that, while it features some of the expected blockbusters, and some of the picks I flat-out disagree with, looking at you, Annihilation, it also includes unexpected gems I plan to add to my holiday watch list. Link is in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. But for now, it's time to get you some early gifts to unwrap. From us to you. Let's hear some fiction. Jerry Lean lives in Northern Virginia and originally hails from Seattle. In addition to being an avid reader, she's passionate about horse racing, tea, and whiskey, and her latest obsession, ASMR videos. She has work appearing in Nature, Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, Daily Science Fiction, Grimdark, and others. She's edited several anthologies for independent presses, is finishing some longer projects, and is a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and Horror Writers Association. Children of the Night, Jerry Lean's Salt the Earth. They rise. All night and all day, they rise, and I hunt. It wouldn't be so bad if they didn't keep rising in the middle of my pa's crops. He gets powerful angry every time I salt the earth behind the critters, but I told him I didn't have a choice. Which is worse, after all. No crops or no family. 
Because the critters would kill Ma and Sis and even little Jenny Joe, who I think is some kind of cousin. She does favor Pa, though, and Ma tends to treat her pretty unkindly. I've heard some gossipy folks wonder if maybe Jenny Joe isn't Pa's kid instead of his kin. I can't say I care. Maybe I would have before the critters, but now I'm just plumb exhausted. And those damn things show no sign of stopping. I beat them back just enough to give us all a breather. Enough to let us pick some fruit off the orchard trees or fish for the trout that fills the pond. But the corn? That harvest is getting smaller and smaller each time I go out. Pa cuffed me the last time he caught me ruining his cornfield. Cuffed me hard, too. I couldn't hear for a few days, which made it damned perilous to hunt. But someone has to hunt. And I'm the only one who sees the critters, so it's up to me. They're dark and sort of slug-like in appearance, but they can move powerful fast when they want to. I've pointed them out to Jenny, Joe, and Sis, but they act like there's nothing there. I yelled at Pa to look up from his work to see one slithering down a fence post next to him, but he just ignored me and the critter. I tried to get Ma to stop her churning long enough to see that she was in mortal danger. Scared the hell out of her when I shot the thing off the chair next to her. She yelled and told me if I didn't wise up, I'd be sent to that home where the crazy folk live. Like I'm the crazy one. I'm not the one churning while the critter is looming. I'm going to take me a walk around now. Find out what the damn things are up to. I can see them oozing over the fences, crawling up from the roots of the corn. I used to like corn. Used to love the sound it made when it was dry and the ears cut off. But now I hate corn since it shelters my enemy. I'd burn the whole damn field down if Pa hadn't hidden all the matches from me. As no kind of ally in this fight against evil. So I talk to Doc Pritchett about the critters. He lets me go on and on, and he never tells me I'm crazy or dangerous or scary. He just asks me how the critters make me feel, and then he writes about it in his little notebook of his. I know that if I die fighting these critters, Doc Pritchett will make sure my name lives on. I turn to see Pa getting in the tractor, not even paying attention to that critter that's reared up on the seat, waiting for him. I run, I yell, I even fire my gun that I'm not supposed to have in the air. Pa sits on the critter. That's how they get in you. That's how they make you evil. You gotta keep them off you. Can't let them touch you. Pa? Boy, what did I tell you about guns? Pa looks different. Something in his eyes is all off. And the critter is gone. Went up into him when he sat on him. It pains me to think of how it went up into him. Critters take the nearest hole. Pa, just calm down. I love my pa, even though he yells at me and hits me sometimes and pretty much always looks disappointed in me. I love my pa. But he's not my pa now. He's something else. He reaches for me, and I fire. The body that was my pa's falls, and I see the critter skitter out from under him, hiss at me, and then disappear under the corn. Damn corn.
I root around in Pa's pockets and find the lighter he uses to keep his pipe going every evening. Pa liked to say we were descended from Vikings, and I read somewhere once that Vikings were burned when they died. So I stomp the corn down and roll Pa onto it. Then I light it. It takes forever to catch. It's still young, not dry in a fire hazard the way old corn would be. But it finally does catch, once I think to get some paper to start the flames. The fire spreads, and it warms me as it blazes, because I can hear critters screaming all over the field. I'm killing more of them than I ever have with my normal hunts. I back away, watch as Pa's body burns and blackens, and I try not to cry at what those things did to him. I'm glad I'm killing so many of them. I'm glad I'm a hunter. I'll keep my family safe. Ma comes out of the house. Jenny Joe insists, too. Ma's screaming, and she's got one of Pa's rifles, even though she hates guns. It was the critters, I say as I walk toward her. In the distance, I hear sirens. Ma called the fire department. And maybe the sheriff. Ma, I had to do it. I reach out for her, still holding my gun. Step away from us, boy. Ma sounds wrong. And I see a critter skittering around in her mouth. Just before I fire. That was Jerry Lean's Salt the Earth, read to us by Jake Wachholz. Jake Wachholz finally found his career path in education and recently completed his first year of teaching, where he taught special education math. His hobby is hobbies, and now that includes reading horror stories for Tales to Terrify. He lives in Ohio with his wife, daughter, and dogter. Thank you, Jake. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story comes to us from the pen, or keyboard, of T.J. Berg. T.J. Berg is a molecular and cellular biologist working and writing in Sweden. She is a graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop. When not writing or doing science, she can be found stravagging the world, cooking, eating, or playing dinosaurs, princesses, and superheroes, sometimes with her son. She can be found on the web at infinity-press.com. And now, T.J. Berg's The Walker Street Story. The line for tickets, convoluted and restless with chatter, was not so long that people were complaining, but Melissa felt every moment of the wait. Cold metal, rigid under her jacket, feeling more obvious by the second. Once the line wound inside and the smells of buttered popcorn hit her with that distinctly fake butter smell that theater popcorn carried, she suppressed a sob. It burbled right up into her throat and behind her eyes. Her hands stabbed into her pockets. This isn't funny, she told herself. It's not a joke. This isn't entertainment. The line crawled forward. Phones up for selfies. Bored texting. Pings and dings and rings sounding along with lobby music and some kid crying and a two-year-old bursting free of mom and bolting under the rope. The sob again, and she knew she should turn and go. But she was almost to the ticket checker now. Papers and phones were flashed and scanned, hers next, then across the burgundy carpet, the blue patterns worn to a shine. She skipped the popcorn and found screen four. The Walker Street story. The black letters arranged on white above the door, the Y in story slightly out of position. Someone jostled her and she clutched her arms tightly to herself, her heart alight in rapid blinks as if trying to clear something. Melissa found a seat, adjusted herself around her jacket's awkward cargo. This isn't entertainment, she thought. She hoped people would be scared. She remembered a man had shot up a theater. It had been deadly, terrifying, tragic, and utterly wrong. People had died pointlessly. There were no good reasons to die. She supposed they were all pointless, but some deaths felt more pointless than others. Some were too early, too wrong. The lights dimmed. Someone opened a bag of candy near her, its wrapper rattling, a burst of sugar-sweet strawberry smell. Previews. There were previews? Of course, it was a movie. Then, there was her building, 
recreated using what? CGI? Models? What had they used? Photos? How good were the details? She'd lived there five years. They hadn't painted the front door in that whole time and a black streak marred the lower right side. The window, just to the right of the door, looking into 1B, perpetually had its blinds closed. One of them was bent and another flipped the wrong way and she'd always wanted to knock on the door of 1B, go marching in and fix it. There was almost always a chalk top scotch board on the walk to the doorway, and someone liked to stick their gum under the handrail. And was the sticker there? The one Brienne had stuck on the door just below the keyhole? A winking emoji sticker, tongue out. Melissa had never known where she had found it. How does a toddler find a sticker without her mother knowing? Those things aren't in the shot of the building. The little patches of green that line each side of the sidewalk leading to their door have been given a tipped-over tricycle, which was stupid because no one in their building left toys in the front. They'd get stolen. But Melissa was transfixed anyway. There were seven kids living in our building. The shot of the building, as it was, as it had been and was not now, whatever it was now, fades to a brownish gray, then to black, and words vibrate onto the screen in silence. On May 21st, 2019, the apartment building at 5383 Walker Street transformed into something else. Those words fade and are replaced. No one knows why. No one knows how. No one has seen the building on Walker Street since the government enclosed the area. Another fade. Another replace. There were 16 apartments at 5383 Walker Street. 39 people lived in those rooms. Of the 28 present for the transformation, only six survived. This is their story. Their story. That's what they were. Stories. But not her. She was no real story. She didn't survive. Not really. This wasn't alive. And then the story begins. Caroline Waits, of course, the famous survivor. It was her story, really. The story of the woman who ran into the transformed building to save her adorable twin daughters and miraculously made it out again. But Melissa wasn't watching anymore. She was in the restaurant, in Strawberry Fields, the hip little diner that served the best desserts, only a block from home, such a lucky chance to work right down the street, putting on the sweet and sassy act, extending a plate of their famous strawberry shortcake to a man with tiny spectacles and an enormous beard. It was 8.23 p.m., and she was waiting tables but thinking about whether Josh was having any trouble getting Brienne, now a little over two years old to bed, and hoping that little Nat, not quite one yet, was already asleep. She worried the same thing every night about this time. But she smiled and sassed her customers. She made good tips, tucked a bit away for the girls' college, for holidays, for Christmas. She served up sticky, sweet desserts with just the right amount of smile and chat, and it was just like any other evening. 
But then, her arm out, a cloud of whipped cream mounded on the offered plate, the shiver spasmed up under her skin, through her arm and into her head and the plate dropped from her fingers. It clattered to the table in an explosion of cream and red berries, filling the big beard with luscious dessert. Then there was the boom. A piercing pain stabbed into her head and was gone, and everyone was standing up and looking around, then people rushed to the door and looked out. Melissa saw through the plate glass window the haze down the street. It included her building. Her home. The front of the restaurant was mobbed. She turned and ran out the back door, past the reeking dumpsters, frilly pink apron covered in strawberry shortcake. She ran right to the building. She passed Caroline Waits, who still stood stunned in front of the building, two grocery bags spilled at her feet. Melissa pulled out her key, but the front door wasn't even there. The mist faded and revealed a black maw. Beyond it, a void. Melissa stumbled at the sight, but her girls were in there. Josh was in there. If it led to nothing, she was going in anyway. So she stepped through the black. She stood in the hallway. It smelled. The sweet, sour stench of rotting meat and beneath that, burnt sugar. As she walked the hall, it extended. On and on it went, no matter how long she walked or ran or walked again. She grabbed a doorknob beside her, apartment 1B. It burned her hand. She hadn't been walking at all. She stood in her hallway, webbed in dim, silvery threads, and glancing up when her neck prickled in terror, she saw descending toward her, now only inches from her nose, a mouth like a baleen whale's. She dropped to her knees, her lips parted to devour a ragged, gasping panic, then ran. She didn't know how she made it through those sticky webs, leaping and jumping and running, thinking all the while of her family up there, up two stories. She hadn't known how Caroline Waits made it, until now, watching the movie. She follows Melissa. She stands in the door, watches in paralyzed horror as Melissa steps inside, freezes there beneath the descending mouth. It is rimmed in eyes. It recoils when Melissa runs, leaving the way clear for Caroline. In quarantine, the government investigators had made Melissa relive every moment over and over and over again until she begged them to stop, stop, stop making her tell it. Then, when she'd been staying with her mom, the movie people had come and wanted her story. She'd slammed the door in their faces. Even after two moves, reporters still called. Writers, doctors, scientists, therapists, spiritualists, ghost hunters. She tried to hide, but they always found her. They wanted to know. What was it like? The stairwell. No light but your cell phone? What was it like? We hear the flashlight turned red. What was it like? The other survivors have told their stories. It will help you. 
We hear the walls were a solid, writhing mass of bugs. Were you stung? What was it like? What was it like? In the movie, Caroline faces the elevator or stair choice. She chooses the stairs, too. Only one floor for her. They learn later that the elevator is a death trap. In case of emergency, use stairs. The floor had opened up and dropped people... somewhere. No remains recovered. What was in your apartment? What did you see? What kind of monster did it hold? Do you know why? Does it connect with some trouble of your inner psyche? Do you think something of your past reflected itself into the apartment? We believe humans willed it into being with our own belief. What do you believe? The religious and the preachers and the just-trying-to-help-you-make-sense-of-the-horror people all had their questions. They found her on the streets, wherever she moved. She didn't have the money to hide properly. She had to work. The movie people had offered her loads for her story, but she couldn't bear the thought. And so, every day there was someone. Someone asking her what was wrong with her that made her apartment turn against her. What did you see? What did you see? How did it feel? What was it like? The movie did not show her, Melissa, opening her apartment with a kick because the doorknob was a fanged snake's head. It did not show the door jamming on something. It did not show her husband, halved, split at the waist, cut sharp and blood pooled, head and outstretched hand blocking the door, eyes wide. In his other hand, Natty's pacifier, his hand pink and swollen. In the pool of blood at his waist, Brienne's stuffed dog Shep, it didn't show these things, because when the movie people came to her, she chased them off, throwing forks and spoons and butter knives from the pile of dirty silverware in her sink and just screaming. What the fuck did they think she felt? Misery and grief and denial. Did they think there was some message in that? Some deeper meaning? In the movie is Caroline Waits. Her husband dead, too. Only the gnawed remains of one leg to tell he'd ever been. Her children, her adorable twin girls, huddled ten feet away in a crying pile of cute blonde curls. Caroline fighting her way to them in blind, senseless heroism and love. This is the world we made, one woman told her, earnest, wide-eyed. She cried for Melissa before Melissa slammed the door in her face. You know that Caroline Waits fought through it all? That is the power of our will, the woman called through the door. She wanted those girls alive more than life itself. Have you asked yourself, on some level, did you want this? Did you want them gone? That movie, it shows what the power of will can do. The power of love, the woman talked into the door endlessly. Her neighbor, an elderly man living in the apartment next door, had stepped out in the hall just as Melissa had swung open the door and raised a baseball bat. The sight of him, scuffed walker hustling toward the woman, every wrinkle in his face shadowed with rage, stilled Melissa's arms. 
Get out of here, you fucking sick bitch. You know what this woman's been through? Get. Get. He spoke the last words like the woman was no more than a dog. Then he pulled out something from his pocket. Pepper spray, he said. Will this out of your life? The woman ran. He chuckled a little, then turned and saw Melissa, the raised bat. Going to brain her, were ya? Melissa let out a breath. God damn people, he muttered. He showed her his inhaler clutched in his hand, chuckled again, then turned and started clumping down the hallway with his walker. Fuckers deserve to know a little real fear, he called over his shoulder. The next day, a small bag of cookies sat on her doorstep. A mix of those round vanilla and chocolate sandwich cookies, the generic ones. Brianne loved those. She got that from Josh. Melissa thought about making the old man cookies, returning the gesture, but no. He'd not left a note. This wasn't a request or an invitation. It was just cookies. She ate them. She thought about real fear. She'd seen his mail. He was a veteran. She didn't know what war. And he'd spoken the truth. The gawkers and philosophers and theorists, they didn't know. They couldn't know. All their talk and watching, it told them nothing. Because in the end, there was nothing in that place but fear and blood and loss and not an ounce of meaning. There was no fucking meaning in it at all. But the idea planted itself. That they needed to know real fear. Not that they might become deep. Not that suffering would give them some virtue. Just to shut them all up. Shut them all the fuck up. A few days later, it was the man in the shining sunglasses. Mirrored glasses he kept on while he ate his salad and smiled benignly and tipped well, then touched her hand when she picked up the bill. It was a sign of the end times, he said. Do you know how blessed you are? She shoved his money back at him, arms shaking in their emptiness. Nothing warm to embrace, no surprise bite from an excited toddler, no little body to hold tight, no demand for big tickles. In the movie, Caroline's arms are not empty. Caroline hustles her children into her arms. Her flight through the building is peppered with the stories of the other survivors. But the dead lay dead, invisible behind doors or displayed in graphic CGI. The young couple upstairs, Blake and Kevin, who babysat sometimes so Melissa and Josh could have a night out and grilled some of the best burgers she'd ever tasted. The old woman down the corridor whose husband had died and left her alone, who gave the kids Christmas and birthday presents. The Polish man who kept to himself except the time their toilet had burst a pipe and leaked through his ceiling. Caitlin and her parents who worked long hours. Caitlin who was supposed to come down if she ever needed anything from an adult, though at 15 she'd pretended great independence. And the people Melissa didn't know, passed in hallways or never seen at all? Bloody decorations for entertainment. Stories were only for survivors, for heroes.
Caroline found her two girls alive. Melissa had slid along the wall past her halved husband while the lashing razor tentacle waited above, poised in the ceiling. Slow, back to the wall, she'd stopped stiff in terror when she'd stepped on a squeaky blue elephant, heart out of control in her chest. She'd kept to the wall, searched for her children. Melissa found Natty in her crib, a cinder enwrapped in blue flames. Brienne was hiding under the table in the kitchen, whimpering. Melissa had not known a child could make such a noise. Finger to mouth to silence her, she'd examined the kitchen for hidden things, tentacles and maws and flaming traps. It looked quiet. But then... Brienne, holding herself together in a way that shocked Melissa, pointed silently at the refrigerator. Melissa scooted around the kitchen the other way, noticed the ooze creeping from the door. As she moved toward Brienne, something dropped from the ceiling and landed atop the table, tentacles dangling down like some monstrous jellyfish and spikes shooting up over the top of the table. Brienne screamed. Hush, Melissa said. She found her broom and mop in the corner, leaned against the garbage can, and used it to open a door in the dangling tentacles. She coaxed Brienne out and into her arms. Tiny hands grabbed hold of Melissa's hair, wet face buried in her shoulder. The warmth of it. It was the world. It was all there was. The fingers pulled gently at her hair, stroking and tugging like she did when she nursed. Brienne's legs tightened around Melissa's waist. Her tiny voice croaked out a mommy. Melissa shook in relief, tears streaming out, though she tried to fight them. She checked the fire escape at their window. Outside was deep twilight saturated by haze. But she could see something dark and shining and wet splattered on the fire escape landing. She looked up and saw only a finger above, a wedding band glinting in the light from a window. She backed away, and as she moved the banister of the stairs seemed to move too, slithering snake-like. She took Brienne into the living room and sidled slowly along the wall again. In the movie, Caroline dodges horrors. One of the twins is bitten by some snake thing lurking over their door and goes still in Caroline's arms. She runs, a panicked, frantic flight to the front door, crashes and entangles in a web, fights free with a kitchen knife she's taken from home, turns and takes her daughters to the back door into the parking lot. Again, Melissa had preceded her in this flight. Bitten and stung and breathless, Brienne clutched in her arms. Melissa had paused for only a second before the door to check its safety, its sanity, then to fling it open to allow the bright lights of the parking lot to pour in. That was the moment the thing struck. Now, Melissa's second appearance on film, lying in the open doorway, waiting to die. Brienne's dinosaur pajamas red with blood, her chest open, her heart gone, 
Melissa's heart gone. She waited for the thing to come back for her and couldn't let go of Brienne. Her hair smelled of coconut and honey from her bath. Melissa buried her face in it. She hardly noticed Caroline leap over her, just felt the air move with her passage. Then, in the movie, Caroline comes back for Melissa. The twins lie safely in the parking lot, and Caroline is pulling Melissa from the door while she fights to stay. Please, 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 Caroline cries, her voice hoarse in panic. You're a nurse, aren't you? Please, please, please. She falls backward onto the blacktop as Melissa rips her arm away. But she's clear of the door now, and within is only blackness. Melissa wasn't a nurse. But her uniform for work looked a little like scrubs once the frilly pink apron was off. She stumbled upright. In the movie, she is graceful. She tries to push Caroline away and run back inside to die, but Caroline is up and pulling her and demanding she help. One of the twins isn't breathing. The film holds steady on the girl's still chest while the battle of voices and cries goes on in the background. Melissa was never a nurse. She had been an EMT for a while, what seemed like ages ago, before switching to waitressing so that she could work the dependable evening hours while her husband could be home with the kids. She does the most important thing first. She calls 911, tells them where they are, what's wrong, then she starts CPR. In the movie, she looks so brave, so collected, but she could hardly breathe herself, much less try forcing air into those tiny lungs. The film takes liberties. The girl gasps for breath just as the real EMTs burst into the parking lot and take charge. Melissa doesn't remember that breath. She remembers being sure that this little girl, too, would die. But she lived. Revived in the ambulance with Caroline and Melissa and the other twin, Jessie, huddled to the side. All rushed to the hospital, placed in the impromptu quarantine, crying with the other survivors. The movie doesn't show Melissa's suicide attempt. People want heroes. The movie fades into a list of the dead, their birth dates. People in the theater begin to murmur. Whispers of sympathy and shock, admiration, disbelief. Just behind her, I don't think I can go out to eat. And those poor souls. The lights of phones flashed on. Melissa opened her coat, hands wrapped around metal warmed by her body. She fired. The sounds were loud and shocking, in the quiet theater, dark holes and liquid splatters and terrified screams. The paintballs tore into the huge screen, some sending sprays of red across the list of the dead. There were shrieks, panic, running feet. Melissa dropped the paintball gun and joined the crowd of scuttling runners peeling feet from the sticky floor, gasping breaths, suppressed cries. The lights came up and some people were still panicked and others realized what had happened and one man was shouting that he'd been shot. 
Melissa vanished herself into the crowd, past pale-faced employees. The crowd was hot, sweaty with the tension slicked between their bodies, their fear acrid in her nose, strange under the theater smell of popcorn and candy. Then she burst outside, into a night cool with the sound of distant sirens coming closer, the smell of damp pavement. She walked to her car. She rested her head on the steering wheel. Some of her fury had burst on the screen, had expelled itself in the crowd's screams, but Brianne and Natty and Josh were still gone. She would never see them again. She would not watch Natty bop up and down at the coffee table again. Brianne would never chase a random dog in the street, demanding to be allowed to pet it. Josh would never come home from work with a surprise bottle of cheap wine and a trashy second-hand paperback romance novel to laugh over together. She would never have her family again. Never. They were gone. Just gone. And her mind would circle around it over and over and over, how they were gone, really gone. In the end... It didn't matter how or why or what happened. All that mattered was that she was never going to see her family again. That was T.J. Berg's The Walker Street Story, as read by Alex Ford. When Alex Ford isn't rocking around the nation in her band, Ford Theater Reunion, she's holed up in her guest room, following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life. You can check out her exploits, Mystery Bruises, and a handsome cat on Facebook or Instagram. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, Alex. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Huddle close, stay warm, and enjoy your time with family and friends. And if you happen to have a spare moment, like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tales to Terrify is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website designed by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. See you again next week. And from all of us at Tales to Terrify, have a happy, horrifying holiday season. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 